Hello, this is Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and today we'll be mapping ketamine on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Oh, and as is her style, Dr. Godfrey completed the matrix for her own episode, so this one is chock full of information beyond what we could cover in the podcast, so be extra sure to go grab it. And today, as I mentioned, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Sarah Gottfried, MD, is a board-certified physician, researcher, and educator. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and MIT and completed residency at UCSF. Dr. Gottfried is a global keynote speaker and the author of four New York Times bestselling books about trauma, hormones, and physical and mental health. Her next book is about trauma and novel treatments, including ketamine and other psychedelic-assisted treatments. Dr. Gottfried has used ketamine in her practice for 28 years and has completed several ketamine trainings with Dr. Robert Grant at Healing Realms and Integrative Psychiatry Institute and is now completing psychedelic-assisted therapy certification. She is clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University and director of precision medicine at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. Her focus is hormone regulation, N of one trial design, personalized multi-omic profiling, use of wearables, group treatment, and how to leverage these tools to improve health outcomes. Sarah, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm always thrilled to have time with you. Hey, Andrea. I'm so excited to be with you. So I know ketamine therapy is a topic that you're really passionate about, and it's not very well understood. And I'm wondering if you can just start us off by speaking into what ketamine actually is. Ketamine is a a medication that's FDA-approved for general anesthesia, but it's really undergoing a renaissance right now because it's been FDA-approved for treatment-resistant depression. It's an old medication that's got some new indications, and the way that it works is it blocks the NMDA receptors, and that leads to rebalancing of glutamate and GABA levels and this rapid antidepressant effect, as well as effects with other problems. And as far as I understand it, we don't actually understand fully how it exerts its effects. Do I have that right? It's so interesting because we do understand the mechanism of action as a non-competitive NMDA and glutamate receptor antagonist, but 
there's some other effects too. It seems to impact the serotonin pathways, the opioid pathways, which gives it an indication that's not yet FDA approved for chronic pain. And in terms of the antidepressant effects, if we just look at that research, that's where there's still quite a bit of uncertainty. But I would say it's not unlike a lot of the other medications that we use pretty regularly. You know, if you just look at lithium as an example, and it's widespread use in bipolar disorder, we still don't totally understand how lithium is affecting brain pathways. And when we think about the connection to something like lithium, there's a really dose-dependent way on how we're using it. Is that true of ketamine as well? It certainly is. So the doses that I've been using for a few decades, mostly for the purpose of sedation or for anesthesia, those are quite high doses, and those tend to cause some dissociation. The dissociation for some people can be quite pleasant, for other people less pleasant. And then if you look at doses that are about one-tenth of what's used in emergency rooms and operating rooms, those so-called low-dose ketamine, that's where you get the empathogenic effects. And there's even a dose in between, a moderate dose, that provides entheogenic effects. Can you talk about that distinction, the empathogenic and the entheogenic and the distinction that you're articulating there? Well, this speaks more to the use of ketamine as a psychedelic-assisted therapy. And the empathogenic doses, I consider those to be the psycholytic doses. So the doses that allow for melting of defensive structures looking at problems, especially stuck problems in your life that maybe you haven't had a lot of insight or psychological flexibility around. So those are what I'm referring to with this empathogenic dose. It's very heart-opening. It's very connecting and relational. Whereas the entheogenic doses are more what we see with what are considered classic psychedelics, such as psilocybin. These are more you know, as entheogen means, these are more connecting to oneness, to kind of this bigger vision for yourself, even what some people call spiritual emergence, you know, this awakening, this process of personal awakening into a level of perception and function that's beyond normal ego functioning. It's so fascinating. And I am curious about the ways in which you've been using it for quite some time now, more than two decades. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. And what patient population are we seeing have the best responses in a clinical setting? If we focus on the lower doses of ketamine, because I don't work in the operating room anymore. I don't work in an emergency room anymore, so I'm not using it for anesthesia or sedation. But people should know it is the treatment of choice in the ER for taking care of children. So in terms of patient populations, I'm designated as a family practice physician. I was board certified as an OBGYN, and yet I've been doing personalized medicine, functional medicine for really the past 20 years. And so there are some patients who've got quite grave mental illness, such as treatment-resistant depression, severe anxiety, even eating disorders, complex trauma, chronic pain, 
those are the patient populations that I refer to a psychiatrist for ketamine. So I'm not treating those people, but that's where the bulk of the research lies, you know, especially around the treatment-resistant depression. And when you are using it, you're using it more for what might be stressful life events, like maybe stuckness, as I see you wrote it on the matrix. Do I have that right? That's right. I find that ketamine is especially helpful for places where folks feel stuck. And at this point in my life, the patients that I'm taking care of, the population that I serve the most is executives. So I take care of a lot of people who are feeling conflict or issues either in their personal lives or their work lives. And that's where I find that ketamine-assisted treatment can be very helpful. I'm also in the process of becoming a psychedelic-assisted therapist, certified as a psychedelic-assisted therapist. So I'm training in Hakomi therapy, which is a mindfulness-based somatic psychotherapy. And ketamine pairs really well with certain forms of therapy, including Hakomi as well as internal family systems. You know, for someone who's got treatment-resistant depression or one of these other indications, I refer those to a psychiatrist because I'm really clear about my scope of practice. Yeah, I love that clarity. And as you were talking about, I'm like, it's me. It's me. You're It's people like me. <laughs> That's and me. <laughs> you and me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what does that look like in a clinical setting? What is the treatment? How is it given? What is the setting? How long is the treatment? What does that actually entail? Yeah, it's a really good question. So The way that I use it, I'll just speak from my personal experience. I've got a few different settings where I provide ketamine-assisted treatment. So one is in my medical practice. I typically start with a sublingual lozenge. So there's a few different options for taking ketamine. You start out with having this lozenge under your tongue, and then you kind of swish around the saliva. It takes about 15 minutes for the ketamine to be absorbed. So that's my preferred way of giving it because it's a way of accessing that psycholytic, empathogenic, even entheogenic effects of ketamine without some of the more severe adverse effects. So that's the way I tend to give it. I've also given it intramuscularly. I haven't given it intravenously, but those are the main ways that we provide ketamine. But let me take a step back because you spoke with another clinician about set and setting. And so there's a few stages to the way that we use ketamine in this context. And it starts first with screening, making sure that you've got a good candidate. You then go on to preparation and what I consider to be the flight instructions so that people are really well prepared with what to expect. I really find with so many of the medications that we give, even what I consider to be more sacred medications, that there's not full informed consent. I think that's such an important part of this process. And then the third part is the experience. And then the fourth part is integration. And I think the more time that you spend, especially with the preparation and with the integration, that's where you get the best benefits. Yeah, that's really nice way of putting it. And such an important part of the process, which I think is getting a little lost in the psychedelic 
therapies, a little <laughs> delivery I, these days. <laughs> yeah, speak into that a little bit. <laughs> well, I I think we're in a reckoning right now. Yeah, with regard to ethics violations with psychedelic assisted treatment, and I err on the side of really being so transparent and clear about the ethics of ordinary states of consciousness versus extraordinary states of consciousness. So you could, you know, ketamine can get you into an extraordinary state of consciousness. And that's a different state in terms of consent, the use of touch, even the way that you access the healing. You know, so much of what I learned when I went through my medical training was that the doctor was the fixer. So you, you see a patient, I know you and I see eye to eye on this, you know, I no longer believe this, but for many years, I was taught that, you know, a patient comes to you with a problem, you develop a differential diagnosis, you come up with what you think is the most likely diagnosis, and then you treat it. And psychedelic assisted treatment is different. It's really much more about accessing the innate healing intelligence of a person. And so with that, it comes with a different set of ethical boundaries than we have in the rest of medicine. So I'll go back for a moment to some of the settings in which I give ketamine. One of the settings is more of a medical setting. And, you know, I I see ketamine given a lot in medical settings, and I think there's some advantages to that. You know, certainly if you have a side effect like laryngospasm where your vocal cords suddenly close, that can be a very safe setting. But I think there's some trade-offs. There's some things that you lose in a medical setting. So there's some safety benefits to a medical setting. And then there's there's also some issues when you take it in a more ceremonial setting, which is what happens more in the underground community. So circling back to the reckoning into the ethics violations that are now well-documented over the last few years, I think we needed to have this crisis and to sit at the table and to talk about the ethics of psychedelic-assisted therapy and treatment in a way that we haven't before. Yeah, I'm so glad you spoke into that because it is a time of reckoning and the reckoning doesn't mean we shut things down. It means we go forward with more awareness, more consciousness. And it brings me back to both the setting and the screening. You spoke about the screening as an important piece. And this is where I think understanding the trauma that a client or patient has and what that means and whether that belongs in a different scope than you may hold or another person who's working in another setting might hold. Are there other factors that you're considering in the screening? And also, are there any contraindications that set somebody up for not being a candidate? There are. So I'm so glad you mentioned trauma because I would say trauma is really at my epicenter right now in terms of looking at the world. It's what my next book is about. And so many of the patients, as I look back over the last few decades of taking care of patients, I feel like the ones that did not get better or they took two steps forward in their healing and one step back, those are often people with trauma. So I think trauma really needs to be center stage. And 
you know, especially after the last couple of years of lockdown, I feel like really none of us are exempt from the experience of trauma. And it just depends on how trauma and the response, potentially the dysregulation of your response, how that got embedded into your system. So trauma is so important. I think in terms of ATM, so in terms of antecedents, I think in terms of the gene environment interface. So that relates to trauma. It relates to BDNF pathways. It relates to glutaminergic and GABAminergic pathways. With triggering events, you know, certainly trauma is so crucial. I see a lot of patients with medical trauma. I have a fair amount of endometriosis in my family, so I've got a lot of interest in endometriosis. And I especially find that those women who suffer with endometriosis often have medical trauma. But of course, it's not just confined to them. Disordered eating, you and I have talked before about my history with disordered eating. And I think that's another important triggering event in terms of the effects and the potential benefits of ketamine. There's a lot of interesting research looking at anorexia right now. And then in terms of mediators, you know, the things that contribute to pathology and dysfunction, this is again where ongoing stressors come in, sleep deprivation, inflammatory cytokines, and how they map to depression and anxiety and what I think of as inflammatory tone. And then the contraindications are interesting because with some psychedelics or some of these novel therapies like MDMA, there are issues with the use of antidepressants and even with suicidality. And those are not contraindications to the use of ketamine. So it makes ketamine in some ways have broader application Now, for my patients who have depression, treatment-resistant depression or suicide, they're going to get their care from a psychiatrist. That's not within my scope of practice. So I would say the contraindications are with people with uncontrolled hypertension, because ketamine does raise both blood pressure and heart rate, not usually by much, you know, 10 to 15 points, but it can be important for people who've got significant risk of myocardial infarction, or they have aneurysms. There's some debate about pregnancy and breastfeeding. So when I first started using ketamine, it was in the emergency room, and then we used it quite a bit at UCSF in patients who needed emergency cesarean sections. And there's been some more recent research led by a local psychiatrist here, Phil Wolfson, showing that the effect of ketamine in terms of getting into breast milk is actually quite low. So I'm always thinking in terms of my patients with postpartum depression, what sort of treatments might be useful for them. And I think ketamine is emerging as a a potential therapy. And then there's other issues in terms of people who are using alcohol as well as cannabis. So please And emergency responders use ketamine, and there have been some fatal incidents with people who were alcohol intoxicated and were given ketamine to sedate them. So you have to be really careful there. And, you know, one of the ways that ketamine works is that it has this neuroplastic effect. So it's not just that you 
are resolving stuckness, there is a biological correlate that goes along with it. And if you are taking exogenous substances that block potentially that neuroplastic effect, such as alcohol or cannabis, you just want to be really careful there. And then the last situation that I can think of off the top of my head in terms of contraindications is schizophrenia, because ketamine can cause dissociation and the psychedelic effect. It can cause delusions. And so you have to be really careful with schizophrenia. And that is not, again, within my scope. Yeah, that's really important to think through and to understand where and when this would be appropriate. And I'm wondering if there are any mm, fringe benefits, silver linings, like are there any things that we're getting out of the treatment that may not actually be what we're going to the treatment for? For sure. So, I mean, this is probably what I get the most excited about when it comes to ketamine because it's not so much the level of ketamine in the body or the direct ketamine effects that seem to be the most salient, but rather this ongoing reaction to ketamine that remains after you metabolize it. So to me, that's super interesting. I heard the chair of psychiatry at Yale talking about this. You know, this idea that there's the sacred medicine that has these ongoing neuroplastic benefits for somewhere around 48 to 72 hours after you take it, that is really interesting to me. And that's also where I think the use of ceremony and more sacred use of ketamine becomes important as an individual develops a relationship with ketamine. And that relationship, what is ongoing treatment like? I'm assuming it's person-dependent, but what is it typically like in terms of how often and for how long of a period of lifetime? Yeah, it really depends on the indication. So if we look at, for instance, treatment-resistant depression, what most people recommend as a protocol is weekly use of ketamine, typically uh, for treatment-resistant depression, either intravenously or intramuscularly. So once a week for about six sessions. So that's the protocol that people are working with right now. I think we're still in the early stages of trying to understand what is the optimal protocol by indication. One of the not-so-great things about ketamine is that the effect is short-lived. So the effect of ketamine, the way that it helps in terms of antidepressant activity or relieving the stuckness with the default mode network, it seems that the remission is somewhere around one to six weeks. And so that ends up needing to be personalized. You know, I've got a lot of patients who, whom I've referred to as psychiatrists and they're getting weekly IV infusions for treatment-resistant depression or for anxiety or for eating disorders. And I think we're still at this learning to crawl stage in terms of understanding, okay, well, how do we use functional medicine to perhaps lengthen that remission period? Could it be related to magnesium, which is a really important cofactor for ketamine efficacy? Could it be related to the way that you eat, move, and sleep? the way that you navigate stress, could those help in terms of lengthening the remission? 
I really appreciate how you're weaving together your physiological and clinical understanding with the kind of combining of these different worlds and how these things work together to take it outside of how it may traditionally be used. And, and traditional, I don't mean historically, I mean more, <laughs> more uh, commonly at this moment. And I find myself curious, Sarah, just about your thinking in terms of ceremony and healing and trauma being at the center of things and how that's shifted over time for you and how something like ketamine fits into that evolution of your own practice and discovery. <laughs> well, I feel like you you just tapped into my book proposal for what, I, <laughs> what I'm writing right now. So I, I so, so, so appreciate this question. You know, I'm at this stage, you and I are, are close in age. I'm at the stage where my first incarnation was as a conventional physician, researcher, and educator. And I still love a lot of those things, but I'm shifting away from that model of you know, come to me with your hormone problems or come to me with your wanting to improve your performance as an executive and I'll give you the end of one experiments that we can do for a prioritized list of your top seven issues. So I'm shifting from that curve to a second curve, which is much more weaving together the physiology of how we respond to life and a more metaphysical approach. So this is where the science gets more murky, although that's changing. You know, we've got a number of centers around the country that are really helping us understand the more mystical sides of agents like ketamine. So my interest is really in healing. That's been my interest all along. I'm just coming out of the closet more when it comes to the tools that we have in the toolbox. And I would say that's where ketamine fits. It's just a tool in the toolbox. And with ketamine-assisted therapy or ketamine-assisted treatment, the therapy part is really essential. So I'm not advocating that people start taking ketamine recreationally. I think the more that you do it, you know, with this intention around healing, with asking the medicine questions, with you know, really looking at how you want to show up in the world and how these medicines can help you show up in the way that you most want. That's the the nexus of what I'm really interested in. And you also asked more about how ketamine fits in. Ketamine is the only medicine right now that's FDA approved. So we have access to it. It's incredibly inexpensive, except for the esketamine, which is the S form of ketamine that was FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression. It's an intranasal spray. But the rest of ketamine, the generic ketamine, is very inexpensive. And some of these other medications that are on the horizon, such as MDMA and this first indication that MAPS is trying to achieve to use MDMA for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the use of psilocybin, the use of toad venom and other psychedelics. That's coming shortly, but 
you know, I've got a medical license. I can only work with FDA-approved medications, so I've got ketamine in my toolbox right now. It makes so much sense, and I definitely kept you long, Sarah, as I always do, because I so appreciate our conversations, and there's so much alignment in how we approach things, of course, from different scopes of practice, but I always appreciate that about our conversations. Before I let you go, is there anything that we didn't talk about in relation to ketamine and ketamine therapy that you really just wish we understood better? What comes to mind is that, and this maps to informed consent, I think it's important to realize that there are people who are non-responders to ketamine. You know, it's somewhere around 20 to 30%. And so that, those data mostly come from the, the group of uh, patients with treatment-resistant depression. But whenever I see that kind of number, and it's, you know, up to a third, when I see that kind of a number, I think, wow, we're still quite a far away from understanding how to personalize this medication for people. You know, my hope is that five years from now or 10 years from now, we can say, okay, you, based on your matrix, based on your gene environment interface, if you have stuckness, here's the treatment that is potentially the most effective for you. So we're still a ways away from that, but that's one of the things I think about when we talk about non-responders. And I think it's important to realize that I'm not saying ketamine is for everyone. I'm saying, you know, there's some people who don't benefit. There's a lot of people who do benefit. Set and setting is incredibly important. And we need to get better at really understanding how to personalize. Yeah, always a good point. And as I said, always a thrill to speak with you, Sarah. Thank you for the work you're doing and everything that you're pushing forward in how we think about health, healing, and everything we can do. <laughs> My pleasure. It's so good to be with you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. 
Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.